Blog Talk Radio. Five, five, four, four, three, three, two, one, one. You are listening to Young Men's Perspective Radio. Young Men's Perspective Radio. With your host, Jeff Hodges. Where we look to enrich, encourage, and engage our youth here on Blog Talk Radio. Where we interview individuals such as Susan Taylor. We're a community in crisis. And we have to step up, we have to stand up, we have to speak up, we have to work together. Sorry, yeah. And then because we have Facebook and Twitter and we're able to share this information, the information is getting out there more. So to me, it's just, it's really social media that's changing the game. Dr. Julia Hill. We live in a racist society and you can get arrested black boys for walking while black, thinking while black, driving while black, and anything you're doing while black. Dick Gregory. So all this violence we see in the black community, that's not legitimate. But in a white racist system that I accept, I believe anything they tell me. Black on black crime is a good example. Young Men's Young Perspective Men's Radio. Perspective Young Radio. Men's Perspective Radio. Your call-in number is 215-383-3998. That's 215-383-3998. Young Men's Young Perspective Men's Radio. Perspective Young Radio. Men's Perspective Radio. And now your host, Jeff Hodges. Hello, wonderful people and the audience of Young Men's Perspective Radio. This is Melinda Cochran for Melinda Talks. Today, I had a, we have a special show. I had an opportunity to interview Dr. Maya Angelou. Dr. Maya Angelou, a Renaissance woman, poet, educator, best-selling author, civil activist, producer, playwright, director, speaks six different languages, was an editor in 1960 in Egypt for the Arab Observer. Given medals of honor, such as the Presidential Medal of Arts in 2000, the Lincoln Medal in 2008, and has achieved three Grammy Awards. She holds over 60 honorary degrees and is a lifetime Reynolds Professor of American Studies at Wake Forest University. After reading Phenomenal Woman and I Know Why the Caged Bird Sings, I soon realized as a reader that I was immersed in the dignified words of what was the best literature of our time. And today in the interview, her dignity of words rang through again. It is my pleasure to begin the interview. Hello, this is uh, Melinda Cochran from Melinda. Hi, Miss Cochran. Hi. Hold on, please. Hold on, please, the doctor. No problem. Oh, good morning. Good morning, Dr. Angela. Good morning. It's my pleasure to uh, interview you today. Thank Uh, you very much. I'll start. My pleasure to be interviewed by you. Thank you. I'll start with your poem, um, Mama Welfare Roll, because I have a real connection to it uh, growing up in the welfare system myself in my country. And I know many of the listeners um, today do as well. And in particular, in particular, your lines, they don't give me welfare, I take it. Yes. But, yes, what about it? What do you want to know? What, uh, just what? Just what you um, meant uh, by that line. Well, some people are given welfare, and they make it the uh, the agent uh, makes it a, a, 
issue of uh, getting talking down to the welfare recipient, uh, and and the recipient accepts the the put down, and uh, is is diminished further uh, by going into an office and almost pleading to be given welfare, and uh, and and threatened. She is often, I say she. Sometimes it's male, but quite often it's woman. Uh, she's often threatened that if she lies on anything about anything, um, she, she, her welfare will be cut off. And if she has a man in the house uh, who's not supposed to be there. So quite often the, the sense of self is so diminished that uh, the welfare recipient has very little esteem for anything other than the welfare uh, uh, donor, but none for herself. And so, but sometimes that is not so. Sometimes the uh, recipient says, I put into this system or my people have, or some people have, and uh, this person who is officiated is not giving me a thing. Uh, there's a joke, uh, Ms. Colton, I don't know, do we have time for me to tell you this? Absolutely. All right. Um, a woman welfare uh, recipient awakened in her six-floor walk-up tenement apartment and uh, found on the bed beside her a note from her husband, uh, her man, saying, uh, we've been married 20 years, and that's 21 years too long. Goodbye, have gone forever. And she managed to go up, go on, get up, go into make a cup pot of coffee and find that she's out of coffee. She decides she'll have tea instead. Alas, the um, the tea, uh, the hot water's been turned off. And then there's no gas that's been turned off. And uh, suddenly she hears a noise and it's her 16-year-old daughter coming in. The daughter has a job at the local five and dime store. Uh, and and the daughter comes in, the mother says, why aren't you at work? And she says, well, the last two or three weeks I've been getting nauseous in the morning. And uh, the mother says, all right, go in and go to bed. Uh, uh, the mother then goes down the six flights of stairs to the mailbox, only to find that her mailbox had been vandalized. Everything is gone including a welfare check, except um, except a notice from the welfare department which says, we found, Mrs. Jones, we found that you had lied on your initial uh, application 20 years ago, and you, we, are, we know you really owe us now $400,000 or something. And we're going to send people around to, to get your furniture uh, because we know you have no money. Uh, she goes back upstairs, and as soon as she gets into the apartment, the garbage um, the garbage men are down on the floor, and they're down on the street, I mean. And uh, they say, garbage, garbage, which is the way it usually was done, and the people would put the garbage in the uh, garbage incinerator, uh, garbage disposal in the hall. And it would then end up being uh, in the 
crying on the street. They were screaming, garbage, garbage. And the welfare recipient put her head out the window and said, send it up. <laughs> There's such a universality of poverty, isn't there? Absolutely. In your memoir... There's a universality. The woman I witnessed has refused to take the put down. Mm-hmm. Yes, I, I totally got that. In your memoirs, you you include political and social relevance, um, and they're long-lasting. Your books hold history tightly in a way that reaches everyone's soul and penetrates the meaning of human triumph. Can you tell us a little bit about your new book, Mom and Me and Mom? Yes, I, I received such salient information from my mother and from my grandmother. I must say from my, my brother. Sometimes not in the spoken word, but in the gestures. Uh, sometimes in the spoken word. I lived with my father's mother, my paternal grandmother, from the time I was three until I was 13, say for a few months uh, away from her. But uh, in those 10 years, I don't remember my grandmother ever once kissing me. But when she had friends over, her neighbors, she'd call me out into the living room, into the, the living room, and she'd say, Sister, stand right there now. Pull up your sleeves. And I'd pull up my sleeves, or I had a jacket on. She'd say, take off your, your jacket. And then she'd take an arm of mine and stroke it and ask the the visitors, have you ever seen a, a prettier arm than this, straight as a plank, brown and, and smooth as peanut butter, just look at this. Um, it was as if she had held me in her in her lap and hugged me and kissed me all over my head and face. You understand? Mm-hmm. So, Absolutely. Uh, she was so proud of me, and she loved me so much, but she wasn't used to... Uh, the uh, public demonstration mm-hmm. of love for children. Mm-hmm. So she never kissed me. But uh, she would ask me, give me a piece of paper, or the bag of the papers, a paper bag, and a pen. And she'd say, now write these numbers down. And she'd give me the numbers. Mm-hmm. And I'd write them down. And then she'd say, now add that up. And she'd say to her guest, now watch her. She can finish that. She can do that in two minutes. Watch it. And of course, I was um, <laughs> happy to do it. Mm-hmm. And as soon as I finished, she wouldn't know it. I mean, she wouldn't have time to check to see if it was correct or not. But she'd show it to all the women. And then she'd say, You see, this is my little professor. Oh, amazing. She was so proud. So that was, uh, that was unspoken. Mm-hmm. Uh, declarations of love and approval. Mm-hmm. Uh, my brother told me often that um, I should ignore people who called me dummy because I didn't speak for many years. I should ignore them because they're stupid. He said, you're smarter than all of them. In fact, you're smarter than everyone we know, except me, of course. <laughs> it, 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 didn't, it didn't bother me because I knew he was smarter than I. He was—he came as 
my family came closest to building a, a genius when they made my brother. Yeah. So, um, but he, his, his protection of me, I, at 15, I was about almost six foot tall. And he, at 17, was uh, five foot four and a half. Mm-hmm. He never grew outside the sun. But he never, he never expected me to, to be rough and tough. He said, you're, not, you're supposed to speak softly. When you speak, you speak softly. And I'm supposed to hold a chair for you. And I'm supposed to open a door for you because I'm the man and you're the woman. Mm-hmm. And he explained that to me. And I believed everything he said. Uh, if he had told me the moon was cheese, I'd have gotten some crackers mm-hmm. and tried to make him get a, a trip to it. Um, so he and then my mother she's an amazing woman she believed I could do anything and uh, she encouraged me to try everything try it Um, do you want that job go get it do you want this get it so at one time, I was, about, I was 22. I had a five-year-old son, two jobs, and uh, I had two rental rooms with cooking privileges down the hall. I wouldn't take anything from anybody. Mm-hmm. I worked. So uh, we, I had gone to her house for lunch. She gave me a, a lunch once a month. And just from the two of us. And she'd made it really elegant and beautiful to look at and wonderful, bounteous in, in taste. And we had finished the last two walking down the street down the hill in San Francisco. And she was going to her car across the street. But I was going to the streetcar at the foot of the, of the hill. My mother said, baby, stop a minute. You know, I think you're the greatest woman I've ever met. I was 22 years old, and my mother owned a hotel and pool halls. Wow. And it wore diamond rings and diamonds in her ears. She said, you're very intelligent and you're kind. And those two uh, properties don't always go together. No, that's right. (laughs) She said, "Um, Mrs. Eleanor Roosevelt. Dr. Mary McCloy Bethune and my mother, she said, you're in that category. It was the most amazing thing. So when I really thought about it, I thought she may be right. I may be going to be somebody. That in so many ways, the the three people who, who had the most influence on my life were my grandmother, my mother, and my brother. And I wrote about them in Mom, Me, and Mom. And how it's very important for a child, especially if the child is, is, is poor mm-hmm. and has no one who lives up to that child. Mm-hmm. If that child is partnered by a parent, mm-hmm. if the parent says uh, the teacher, not, not the teacher, nor the preacher, nor the police uh, uh, agency, 
uh, has has a, a better chance at my son and my daughter than I. And I'm on my daughter's side. I'm on my son's side. And the child must know, must be told and shown that he or she has a partner, an advocate, and that advocate is a parent. Powerful. All right? Yes. Um, that actually leads into the next question uh, about Phenomenal Woman. I don't want to keep you long because I know... Um, and your poem speaks to the beauty of the female spirit, of body beauty and sensuality. What are your thoughts today on the mass media messages being given to uh, the young women and men and the changes you've seen in media during your lifetime? Well, I'm sorry. That is just this big screen of, uh, of horrors. Mm-hmm. And if the child doesn't have, the young person doesn't have some foundation at home, she or he is likely to be um, swallowed mm-hmm. in this in this outrage of se- sexuality, mm-hmm. which really has very little to do with sensuality. That's right. It is uh, so that 14 and 15 year old girls are encouraged to wear uh, 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 clothes that are just not fitting. Mm-hmm. That is to say, they they call for for uh, to be they call for men to look at them with an eye to sexuality, uh, with an eye to sexual behavior, and what they really are asking for is sensuality. Mm-hmm. They're asking to be cared for, but they don't know that, and so. Um, and so they wear the wrong things. And the young men, too, are encouraged by the media to expect uh, a, a lot of, of sexuality. But they're not informed the, the sweetness of sensuality. Mm-hmm. So that sometimes the young men uh, feel they are encouraged by the society to force women and force girls uh, to find all intents and purpose, purposes rape, rape them. And if they didn't want to be raped, why did they wear those clothes? Mm-hmm. It's their rejoinder. So uh, I just wish more and more parents and family members, mm-hmm. I include aunties and grandmothers and grandfathers and uncles, I wish more of the family would, uh, would head that off by treating the children as growing uh, men and growing women, but not grown. That's right. All right. Yeah, that's a, and just to, to close, um, I was wondering if you had uh, any messages to give to the youth that will be listening to this from Young Men's Perspective and uh, some that I mentor with the Better Detroit Movement and my students. What message would you, you give them uh, about overcoming struggle? Yes, one of the things you must do is have your mind made up. Mm-hmm. Now, you may have to do that every other day, but uh, there's a saying, uh, I'm told Art Linkletter made the statement that growing old was not for sissies. The truth is growing up is not for sissies. You can get old without growing up. That is to say you can uh, be eligible for the draft and eligible eligible 
for, for uh, the death penalty and to vote, but you haven't really grown up. You have simply gotten older. So uh, I think that uh, young men and young women have to look at themselves and decide, I'm going to be better. I am better than I appear. I am better than most people think I am. And I will show you. I will show myself that. I will, I will act with, uh, with uh, respect and courtesy. I will do it. I don't care who laughs or what, what they do, but I'm going to do that for myself. Mm-hmm. And you'd be surprised there are people who you will encourage. And they, too, they say, you know, you see, John, he's doing that. Rick is doing that. You know how, I mean, he actually got up and gave an older person his seat. What? I like that. I don't want to do that. You'd be surprised how just a little good goes a very long way. So I would like to young, ask young men and women to behold themselves. Look at yourself. Look at yourself. Look in the mirror. If you, if you, all you see is the, is the, the image of somebody your people hate or people hate and look down upon, you're better than that. Look at yourself as if, as if somebody just told you you've been, uh, you just won the, the best, uh, best in, in show, best in place of a, a young man who's going to go far, a young woman who's going to go far. I just would say this also, young women and young men. This is 14, 15, 13, and, and younger and older. Somebody is going to find an answer to breast cancer. And she, or he may be 15 right now. Somebody's going to find an answer to prostate cancer. Somebody's going to find it. And a, a, a medicine which will really do take care of the head, headaches. Nothing really does now. We have things that kind of dull the headache, but not really cure headaches. Mm-hmm. I would encourage you to realize somebody's going to teach us to be better, better citizens mm-hmm. and better friends to our neighbors like Mexico and Canada. Excellent. Somebody is going to do it. And Alaska, well, Alaska is in the U.S. But um, and somebody is going to teach us and show us how to obliterate this cancer of racism which cripples our country. Why, why couldn't she be one of your students? Why couldn't he be one of the, your students going to f- finish high school and press on even if it means getting a job to pay for his way through school. Mm-hmm. Many people have done it. Why shouldn't he mm-hmm. or she? Amen. You're the best we have. Young people, you are the absolute best we have. We have no one better than you. I thank you very much, Ms. Yes, it's been an honor, and I thank you for your words that, uh, you mean, your book in... Uh, I know why the uh, cage bird sings is the reason I wrote my memoir. So I thank you for your time and the messages that you've given everyone. Oh, I thank you very much for that. Let me hear about what you're going to say when you do the radio show. A story? Yes, I mean, that is, 
if you have a tape. Oh, yes. Send it, send it to me. Yes. I'd like to know. I will send it All to right. you. Absolutely. All right. Thank you. Thank, Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you. Stay well. You stay strong. And please stay committed. I will. Absolutely. Thank you. Thank you. Bye. Thank you. That was Dr. Maya Angelou. It was an absolute honor to interview her. And she said in the interview, when I raised my son alone, I didn't want to take anything, yet she's given the world so much. I would like to end the show by reading her poem that has helped so many women tell their story, including myself. I know why the cage bird sings. The free bird leaps on the back of the wind and floats downstream till the current ends and dips his wings in the orange sun rays and dares to claim the sky. But a bird that stalks down his narrow cage can seldom see through his bars of rage. His wings are clipped and his feet are tied, so he opens his throat to sing. The cage bird sings with fearful trill of the things unknown but longed for still, and his tune is heard on the distant hill for the caged bird sings of freedom. The free bird thinks of another breeze, and the trade winds soft through the sighing trees, and the fat worms waiting on a dawn-bright lawn, and he names the sky his own. But a caged bird stands in the grave of dreams, his shadow shouts in a nightmare scream, His wings are clipped and his feet are tied, so he opens his throat to sing. The cage bird sings with a fearful trill of things unknown but longed for still, and his tune is heard on the distant hill, for the cage bird sings of freedom. And that was Maya Angelou's poem, and it has been an absolute pleasure to interview and to have this show today. Until next week, everyone, take care. Bye-bye.